I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Hi, sorry, could you give me a minute? I'm out of breath. <laughs> Where are you running from, Chris? You know why I'm out of breath? <laughs> Tell me. Victory lap, baby. So <laughs> the last time we recorded, it was a Wednesday afternoon, and we recorded that Friday's trial balloon. We recorded early that week because I had a business commitment and you were in moving limbo. Glad to see that that's totally changed. So we recorded it early. I alleged in that recording with little evidence, but infinite intuition, that you had bribed New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg to avoid indicting Trump while you were away in Nepal and India. You, you might recall, denied it. It was a flat out denial. 24 hours after that recording with you safely back in the US, all of a sudden Bragg decides to release news of the indictment. All I'm saying is if I had my own grand jury, I am highly confident I could indict you based on the narrative I've outlined. Well, you do remind me of a ham sandwich, Chris. So You can indict a ham sandwich <laughs> and you would be indicted, ham sandwich boy. You would be well, indicted. Not, like I said, I'm not going to tell you how I did it, but I'm certainly happy that I wasn't hiking in the Himalayas when it happened. What an amazing turn of events, though, nonetheless. Yes, it's been an incredible turn of events. And you know, I enjoy running. There's little running I enjoy more than a victory lap. So a good time to remind folks about the mailbag. We've got another question that we're going to address today. If you want to send questions to the mailbag, here's how. If you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to contact Tegan via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with business. Tegan, as noted, we have Trump indictments and I've got the S in parentheses because as of this recording, we have one, but there might be others coming down the pike. We don't know. Why don't we start with what did you think of the Alvin Bragg New York case? Or maybe what do you think of it still now, now that there's been some time for dust settling? Should Bragg have brought the case? What's the impact on Trump? What's the impact on the rest of the Republican Party? All good questions, Chris. My first takeaway of the indictment was it is still a remarkable image to see Donald Trump sitting in the courtroom, flanked by lawyers, responding to this indictment. That was an amazing case. It was amazing to watch him walk into the courthouse. It was amazing to watch police, I guess, not hold the door for him and have the door almost hit him in the face. It was amazing all around. It's never good to be indicted. I'm sorry, everybody trying to figure out the politics of this whole thing. An indictment is not good for you. Should Bragg have brought the case? That's a question for a lawyer, of which I am not, thankfully. But of the lawyers that I read and of all the legal analysis that I've read, it doesn't seem like the strongest case in the world. It seems like a bit of a stretch to make a bunch of misdemeanors into a felony. But what do I know? Maybe Bragg has a very strong case. You know, if you just remember back, this was the zombie case in Bragg's office that they were never going to bring and that two prosecutors actually left his office disappointed that he did not seem to be moving on this case. So those prosecutors actually probably think there was a strong case against Trump. And ultimately, Bragg did bring the case, but we'll have to see how it plays out. What's the impact on Trump in the immediate term? And what's the impact on the rest of the Republican Party? 
You have to divide that question. How does it impact Trump? Personally, it's not good. Personally, it's yet another distraction that is going to take him away from running for president or doing whatever Donald Trump does during the days. He will have to spend time answering this case and preparing his defense in this case. What is the immediate political impact of the case? I mean, nearly every poll shows Republican voters somehow rallying around Trump. They think it's unfair. Donald Trump has told them it's unfair. He's used Fox News and other outlets to make his case that it's unfair. And so if you're Ron DeSantis potentially running against Donald Trump in a 2024 presidential primary, it's not good for Ron DeSantis either because Donald Trump seems to be increasing his lead in every poll that you look at, both state polls as well as national polls of Republican voters. However, that does not mean that it is good for Trump or good for certainly the Republican Party. The impact on the Republican Party is that it almost freezes this primary race in a way. It's still Trump versus DeSantis who's trailing, depending upon the polls that you look at, trailing nationally by more than 20 percentage points. It's hard to see how Ron DeSantis makes up that gap if things stay like this, where you have an indicted candidate that's running. And what does DeSantis do to try to close that gap? People are rallying around Donald Trump. Republicans are rallying around Donald Trump for this case. I I think it puts the Republican Party in a terrible bind. While it doesn't guarantee Trump will win the nomination, Donald Trump is far and away the front runner of the nomination. You know, and when political scientists look at the invisible primary that's going on right now, all of the activity, the fundraising and the endorsements that take place, you know, long before the actual primary contest begin, Donald Trump is winning the invisible primary. He is getting Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill to endorse his candidacy. And that's a really big deal right now in terms of pulling the Republican Party around him. What it means for the Republican Party is they may have an indicted, they may even have a convicted candidate running for president in 2024. Did you read the Frank Luntz piece earlier this week in the New York Times, How to Make Trump Go Away, his eight guidelines to beating Trump for Republicans? I did. It was very interesting. To go through some of the points, beating Trump requires humility. It starts by recognizing that you can't win every voter. You can't even win half of them. Second, Trump has become his own version of the much-hated political establishment. Mar-a-Lago has become Grand Central Terminal for politicians who just were identifying how he's getting so much Republican support. Republican voters and Republican candidates need to focus with a simple campaign pitch along the lines of, we can do better, we must do better. He went on to say, compliment Trump's presidency while you criticize the person, make it more about the grandchildren saying a line, something like, we mistake loud for leadership, condemnation for commitment. The values we teach our children should be the values we seek in our president. There's one character trait, he writes, that unites just about everyone, an aversion to public piety while displaying private dishonesty, in a word, hypocrisy. Lastly, you need to penetrate the conservative echo chamber. You need at least one of these on your side, Mark Levin, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, Newt Gingrich, and of course, Tucker, Sean, and Laura. We're going to talk about Fox a little bit later in this conversation. By the way, I know you saw, or at least you saw clips of, Tucker's love fest with Trump earlier this week. That followed Sean Hannity's love fest with Trump last week. 
who knows about Laura Ingram. I don't know to what extent any of the other ones that Luntz mentioned are leaving Trump's side. So the bottom line is great article, really great points, looks like a blueprint, which is how Luntz meant it. The findings were based on focus groups that he conducted. Looks like a blueprint to beating Trump. And yet, as you just pointed out, the closest candidate, closest competitor, DeSantis, is around 20 points behind nationally. Are any of the Republicans going to take on the right strategy and take on Trump? Frank Luntz outlines an interesting strategy of how the ideal candidate would go up against Trump, realizing that actually a large percentage of the party is not going to buy it. The biggest thing that DeSantis and others have with Donald Trump is the argument that he's not electable. And every single day that goes by, it looks like he's not electable in the general election. Of course, that's a very hard argument to make in a primary. It's something we hear every four years. This candidate's more electable than that candidate. And they try to make that argument for themselves, but it's extremely hard. The one thing that I notice about Trump that's happening in this 2024 race, and that's very different than if we go back to 2015 and 2016 when he was running, is Trump is no longer a happy candidate. Even back in 2015 and 2016, you could tell when he was campaigning, you could tell he was having fun. He knew that he was saying things that were completely untrue, but he kind of had a laugh about him. You know, he bonded with a lot of voters that way. The Donald Trump that's running right now is angry. He's bitter. He feels the world is against him. And while that is appealing to some Republican voters, and certainly Donald Trump has proven that he can pull out voters, you know, particularly who feel like the world in this country has left them behind and that our political system is not working for them. I'm not so sure that a candidate who isn't happy or who doesn't provide hope for voters is electable in a general election. And I think that that's the case that someone like Ron DeSantis needs to bring against him. The problem is that Ron DeSantis is pretty much the same kind of candidate as Donald Trump. He doesn't offer a vision of hope either. But if you go back and you look at all of the candidates who won, you look at George W. Bush, the happy warrior, you look at Barack Obama, literally had a poster with the word hope on it. You had Bill Clinton talking about the kid born in Hope, Arkansas. That's missing from Donald Trump's campaign right now. And for all of Joe Biden's faults, Joe Biden is someone who constantly talks about hope. He constantly talks about the future at age 80. He knows a lot about the past, but Biden is always trying to bring the message of what he's doing and what his agenda is to the future. And that is seriously lacking in Trump right now. I mean, you can see it every time he opens his mouth. It's all about bitterness. It's all about the world is against him and how he's been wronged. I just don't see that as resonating at all in a general election. That sense of hope is such a core American characteristic. It's such a core human characteristic. And you're totally right. Maybe Nixon in 72. I mean, I don't know to what extent his campaign was based on hope versus other emotions. I can't imagine Nixon as as such a hopeful candidate. But really, every winning candidate is someone who's bringing that vision of hope in the last 30, 40 years. Either perhaps we're at such a unique point in time in history where that core human emotion is going to be put to the side, or that's the wrong emotion to be playing up or avoiding, as Trump has been doing. I'm also curious, you wrote today a piece called Trump Desperately Tries to Run Out the Clock. And talk about a strategy that is not cemented in hopefulness. 
you wrote, Trump's main strategy right now is to delay by asserting executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, and the speech or debate clause. He knows this will take time to litigate in the courts. However, the clock is ticking. Smith and the Justice Department will need to make a full charging decision before the 2024 presidential campaign season is in full swing. I was writing that in response to special counsel Jack Smith's investigation, which this week we learned quite a bit about the progress of those cases. We know that there's at least two grand juries that are meeting every week discussing Trump and his advisors, discussing what is happening on each of these fronts. One of the grand juries, we believe, is focused on the January 6th Capitol riot in Trump's role in inciting an insurrection. And the other one seems to be focused on the classified documents that Trump took and brought with him to Mar-a-Lago and were subsequently seized in a raid by the FBI. We learned an awful lot about this because it looks like they are actually moving quite farther ahead than uh, most of us had thought. And particularly, the classified documents case seems to be much farther along than any of the others and seems to be pretty slam dunk. He has the documents. He did not want to give them up. Perhaps most importantly to this entire thing is it seems that there are witnesses now who have claimed that Trump showed them the documents, both at Mar-a-Lago and also on his plane, that Trump had these documents that he was showing them, one to a reporter, someone writing a book, and possibly to others, just visitors at Mar-a-Lago, as well as potentially foreign nationals. And that could be just tremendously bad for Trump in terms of this case, because that's a pretty much a slam dunk case. There was a really uh, interesting commentary that was made earlier today by George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband. He said, which was pretty funny, that he believes that this classified documents case is the shortest distance between Donald John Trump and an orange jumpsuit. And he says he still adheres to that view. So that seems to be the one that creates the most legal jeopardy for him. The point is, is that in terms of running out the clock is that Donald Trump does everything he can to delay. He tries to assert executive privilege where executive privilege doesn't necessarily even pertain. You know, he tries to do everything he can to pause and to delay these proceedings. We know that the Justice Department doesn't like to intervene in elections. They don't want to be seen as causing an outcome in the elections due to their actions. And this is what obviously Donald Trump is playing. If he can push these cases out through the end of 2023 or through early 2024, when the primaries and the caucuses begin, it seems to me if the Justice Department acts like the Justice Department over the last decade, seems to me that they would be much less likely to bring indictments against Trump if the campaign season is already on full swing. So we'll see how that happens. It seems like the classified documents case may be much further along and maybe Donald Trump's strategy won't work there, but we'll see. And then of course, we've talked about the Alvin Bragg case, but the one case we haven't talked about is the case in Georgia where the Fulton County District Attorney has been apparently, according to reports, ready to bring charges any day now. So that could happen as well. And that could be another headache for Trump. Well, the only thing that could delay the Georgia pending indictment that could happen any day now, apparently, is if you travel and leave the country. So as long as you stay domestic, I think that that will proceed. And by the way, on your previous point about the Justice Department's desire, historical desire to avoid taking action that could have the appearance or reality of affecting campaigns and presidential elections. Of course, you're referring to the Comey doctrine, where (laughs) you would never do something or take any action that might hurt one of the candidates. Let me ask you, let's make this topic number two. To what extent are Republicans boxed in? Are they boxing themselves in? So you've just gone through 
Trump's strategy is to delay. That's going to keep this all going on and on and on. Maybe some of it will get resolved. Maybe some of it won't. But it's obviously Trump and his actual or pending indictments is going to take a lot of the air out of the trial balloons for a long time. But Republicans also face big splits between their stated positions, their actions that they're taking, and the American public in issues like access to abortion, access to the abortion pills, gun control, kicking the Nashville three or two out of the Nashville three out of the state legislature, Trump's behavior broadly. To what extent are Republicans' minds are signing checks that their bodies can't cash? Donald Trump has the Republicans boxed in. I mean, he's in a situation where he told Tucker Carlson that he would run even if he were indicted. It's my belief that he would run even if he was convicted and that if he doesn't get the nomination, that he would run as an independent somehow. So I think in every way, Donald Trump has boxed in the Republican Party. But you're right. You bring up abortion. Republicans are completely boxed in on abortion, you know, particularly when it comes to the availability of these abortion pills. 70 plus percent of the public supports their availability. Similar numbers support abortion rights. And yet everywhere you look, Republicans, where they have power, the most obvious being Ron DeSantis as governor of Florida, everywhere you look, they're looking to restrict abortion further. They're talking about Mike Pence, who's running for president, as you know, is talking about a national abortion ban. Ron DeSantis is about ready to sign a bill that would ban abortion after six weeks, which effectively is a total ban on abortion. That is not where this country is. Just another example of how these issues have kind of gotten ahead of Republicans. They don't have a good response because the majority of the public is against them. The other issue is on common sense gun control, gun restrictions. After that tragedy in Nashville, we saw how Republicans reacted to that. It wasn't to talk about common sense gun restrictions. It was to expel legislators who were fed up with inaction by their own legislature. And After and the tragedy in Nashville, but before the tragedy in Louisville, but after the tragedy at Michigan State and after so many others. The whole thing is ridiculous. You know, uh, where Democrats are in power, you know, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, as we record this, she just signs new gun restrictions, background checks being the core of what she signed. That's something that Americans support right now. The Republican Party doesn't have answers, but their positions now are so firmly entrenched in the minority of this country that it's really hard to see why they take these positions if they want to win general elections. And that's what brings you to the scary point. If they're taking positions, that are not popular positions that the majority of Americans do not support, then it really makes you wonder, is our democracy actually even functioning anymore? Or does the Republican Party even care about winning elections in that normal way where one candidate gets more votes than the other? Do they actually even believe in elections anymore? Over the course of the last few years, a significant section of the party doesn't seem to believe in elections anymore. So that would kind of coincide going along with taking issues where just a small minority of people are on your side. Well, you and I often think about it and often quote, we attribute it to Ben Thompson and maybe somebody else said it first, but if you want to understand why someone does something, look at their business model. And if the Republicans' business model was to win elections, well, the actions that they're taking, the things that you're describing, aren't a path to successfully execute that business model. Now, my one pushback to that would be if, because of all of the things that we know about, let's just call it gerrymandering, if because in order to win your primary, and then if so many districts are not competitive, winning the primary equals winning the seat, 
is it possible that you actually should look at the business model and their business model is to individually stay in office? And the way to do that is to take extreme positions that may be unpopular broadly, may never win you the majority of legislative branches, may never win you the presidency or may not win you those those areas, but will win you your individual seat. You know, maybe it is the business model. Interesting point. I mean, we obviously see that most clearly in Tennessee, where gerrymandering of state legislative districts led to super majorities held by Republicans. In the, How many in of those the Tennessee legislators are going to lose their next elections because they voted out two black male members of the Tennessee legislature? How many of them are going to get yeah, voted no, out? That's right. Office? I mean, most of them don't even have opponents when they're running, which again, by the way, is not democracy. You know, this idea that somehow, even in my own town where I live, I find it amazing when a party doesn't put up a candidate and it just kind of concedes the election. And one party seems to take that as a victory. It's no victory when we don't have choices in elections. We should always have choices in elections. And to be honest, even if it's your party that has no opponent or your party's candidate who has no opponent, that's bad for democracy. It's actually bad for the candidate. Everyone should be challenged as best they can and, you know, may the best man or woman win the race. As we know from virtually everything we've seen over the last half dozen years, our democracy is definitely in trouble. We have real issues here in this country. I think Tennessee really showed what happens when democracy is not working. But keep in mind, we're going to win our elections, yours and mine, with hope and with hopefulness. So yes, keep country's in trouble. But we're going to keep hope alive for keep sure. Hope alive. Yeah, you got you got there before I could. <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep hope alive. The other thing that we're going to keep alive is the mailbag. We are running a little long today, but we've got a lot to say. So well, and also we uh, unfortunately missed an episode last week due to some travel and some family obligations and holidays. We owe it to the listeners to do a little bit more this week. We owe it to them. I mean, that's so properly phrased. The people demand it. I'm sure. We got an email from Jim that was really excellent. It's also timely. Let's get to it. The note says, Tegan, the middle of April will bring the start of the Dominion trial. Once opening arguments commence, the question of what is fake news will be front and center. If the truth that Fox knowingly lied to the viewers completely sinks in, many of the viewers may become unmoored, not unhinged, from their previously strongly held beliefs. Combining that with any indictments will completely turn their world inside out. Anyone would have difficulty handling all of that. Do you have any ideas about what we can expect? This experiment in democracy will be stress-tested. Warm regards, Jim. This is an amazing thing that is happening right now. And the fact that there's a piece by Dylan Byers of Puck that I linked to today asking why didn't Fox News settle this case? The discovery has been totally damaging. Emails and text messages coming out showing, again, what Fox's business model is. It had nothing to do with the truth, had nothing to do with the facts, had everything to do with nurturing this audience, most of which was loyal to Donald Trump. That's only going to get worse when this thing goes to trial. So it's amazing to me that Rupert Murdoch did not try to settle this trial. Secondly, what's amazing is that Fox News was sanctioned already before the trial begins by the judge because they were misleading the judge on the true role of Rupert Murdoch. Turns out he actually has executive responsibilities over Fox News. His lawyers told the judge he did not. I'm not a lawyer, Chris, but I don't think it's probably a great idea to piss off the judge before your trial begins. 
Anyway, as we record this, jury selection is beginning. I think that this will be a very big trial. This will be one of the bigger trials that we pay attention to. But unfortunately for Jim and Jim's question, I don't think anybody who's watching Fox News is really going to get an appropriate view of what's happening at this trial. So unless they switch their channels to other sources or unless they start reading Political Wire, I don't think they're actually going to get an appropriate view of what is actually happening. So the idea that these people who've been nurtured by Fox News over all these years to falsely believe in all sorts of things and and to help follow Donald Trump, they're not going to be getting the truth because they're not interested in the truth. They're not watching it. For the rest of us, so much of what we found in text messages and emails has only confirmed what we all suspected. Although, to be honest, it's worse than I would have ever thought. And I suspect that the trial is going to be worse. I mean, we, we're going to hear, if reports are correct, we're going to hear on the witness stand from Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham, other executives. It's going to be an amazing trial. And it's really, I think, going to blow open, as Jim says, what is wrong right now with our democracy and where a really big weakness is right now. You want to know the answer to Dylan Byer's question? Why didn't Fox settle the Dominion case? Sincerely? Because Dominion didn't want to settle. <laughs> okay. Okay, fine. Maybe that is why. Maybe maybe that's why. Although I bet if that were the case, somebody would have leaked that to Dylan Byer. Like Dylan Byers would have had that as part of his reporting. Maybe, let's say. The other reason, I think, is exactly the topic that we were talking about a moment ago regarding the Republican Party. Fox News was boxed in. What were the concerns of the Fox News talent, the insiders in the emails that came out? They were afraid that they were losing viewers. If they settled, it would have the effect of even if they admitted no wrongdoing, et cetera, but if they paid, Dominion surely wouldn't settle without there being a significant payment, I would think. Once Fox did that, that would have been akin to admitting we were absolutely wrong on that. The election was not stolen. Dominion had no negative effect. The election was not stolen. So it would have helped drive the exact thing that they were absolutely terrified about in the other direction, which was losing viewers. I think they literally couldn't settle. I think that's really interesting. It's a really interesting point. And it really does show the parallels between what's happening to the Republican Party nationally and to what's happening at Fox News. We have, we've known for years that the two were intimately linked and we're beginning to see that they're subject to the same political pressures as well. Boxed in it is, Chris. Do you know who's not boxed in? <laughs> who's that, Chris? Our, our listeners. We got to let them go. Bye, Tegan. Bye, Chris. Take care. Take care.